You know, we've been looking at the book of Revelation now for several weeks. And we're getting close to the midway point in the book of Revelation. And a lot's been going on, a lot's still yet to happen. And some people can look at the book of Revelation and see how much is there and how much we don't know. And they'll ask this very question that's on the screen. What is the point of the book of Revelation? If, if we can't fully understand it, what's the point? Why is it there? I know at the beginning of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, it says you're blessed if you read it. Okay, I'm blessed if I read it, but I don't understand everything that's inside of it. Well, the thing about that is, you know, the, that's really a truth I think about all of Scripture and about God himself. Because the more of God you know, or even the more of Scripture that you study, the more you realize how much you don't know. The more you know of God, the more you realize there's more of God than you can come to understand. The more you study Scripture, the more you realize, I really don't know all that much. Because you can study this entire book cover to cover, for your entire life and find new realizations from a very familiar passage having studied it 70 times before. God is always revealing things through his word, through his nature, through his healing hand, through his divine wisdom. And so in studying the book of Revelation, as I'm hoping we're going to be seeing throughout this series, we're going to see God reveal more and more about who he is and what the point of the entire book is itself. Uh, we're going to see a little bit of that today. What we've been doing in Revelation is we've seen it was written down by John the Apostle. Last apostle alive on the earth at this time. He's been exiled to this prison island of Patmos. And Jesus shows up in a vision to him on that island. And gives him a word for the Christian church uh, in the couple of chapters, chapters 2 and 3, and then he's, he tells John, Jesus tells John, I'm going to give you a vision of the future, of the end of the world, and I want you to write everything down that you see, everything down you hear. And so Jesus begins to show him this. Jesus shows him the throne room of God. And so John does his absolute best to describe the throne room of God. I know some of us reading that in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, we're saying, I really wish John gave us a little more image in those chapters of what he was actually seeing. I mean, he described the throne, he described seeing this like green rainbow encircling the throne, but that's really all he says. But imagine you were given the task of looking at God and writing down what you saw. You think it would be a little difficult to describe? <laughs> And so John's doing everything he can using the language available to describe what he's seeing. And then as he's describing the throne room of God, and there are these four creatures that are flying around God's throne, constantly praising God. So it's constant praise. There's also 24 smaller thrones around God's throne. And on those are these elders, and they're constantly praising God. And then Jesus comes out, and Jesus takes a scroll that was in God's hand, and this scroll has been sealed with seven seals, and Jesus begins to break open each one of those seals that are on this scroll, and as each seal is popped open, something happens around the world. Something happens. Like, for instance, 
he pops open those first four seals on this scroll, and as he does, a different rider comes out on a horse that represents something that's going to happen in the world. Devastation, plague, war are going to break out. And other things begin to happen. And where we're going to get today, we're down in Revelation chapter 8. And so if you look in your uh, Bible, it's in Revelation chapter 8. It'll be on the screens. Or you can use a Bible there on the pew rack uh, there in front of you. It's on page 1032 if you want to grab one of those Bibles. Uh, But Revelation chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Uh, Six of the seven seals on this scroll have been opened at this point. And Jesus is about to open the seventh seal, and a whole bunch of stuff is about to happen when he opens the seventh seal. Now, you would think, okay, Jesus has been opening each of the seven seals. Something's happened when each seal is opened. Uh, But we just saw in the last chapter last week that uh, uh, when those seals have been opened, but the devastation and destruction hasn't happened yet. Because in chapter 7, we learn that they're waiting for all of the Christians to be sealed by God first to, to uh, be, be uh, secured and protected by God, and then all of the judgment and destruction is going to come. And so verse 1 of chapter 8, that seventh seal on this scroll is going to be opened. It says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So the seven seals popped open and there's silence in heaven. And if you know, you've been reading along as we've gone through this, you know there hasn't been one second of silence since John started this vision in heaven. You've got all the four creatures praising God constantly. You've got those 24 elders praising God constantly, taking their crowns off, throwing them at the feet of Jesus. You've got all this action taking place. You've got all this noise taking place. And then Jesus breaks open that seventh seal on the scroll, and everything goes quiet. And have you ever been in a very loud situation, and then all of a sudden all the noise is taken away? You know, sometimes they do that in movies, right? It gets really, really loud and then silence, and it's almost like it's like the silence is beating on your eardrums kind of a situation. And so that's what is going on here. It's constant noise and then complete silence. I mean, imagine being in your house and you've got, let's say you're in our house, and there's five kids, and they're all making noise, a lot of noise as they tend to do, and then all of a sudden it's quiet, thinking something's about to happen. <laughs> That's what I'd be thinking. Something's about to happen. All the kids were really loud, and now they're really quiet. Something's about to explode. Uh, but that's the idea. Is all this noise and complete silence. And then seven angels come out. And these seven angels are given a trumpet each. They're not each given seven trumpets. That would be kind of crazy. There's seven angels and seven trumpets. Each angel is handed a trumpet. And we see here... Uh, after this silence, they get these, these trumpets. And so they're going to stand there, and they're going to blow these trumpets. And as, just like with the seals, each seal was popped open, something happened. Each trumpet is going to be blown, something's going to happen here. Uh, look at verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Now, th- this idea, the best we can tell, this is probably like, a golden rod with like a scooper kind of a deal on the end of it, okay? And uh, so this angel comes out, and he's got this golden stick with a little scooper deal on the end. Uh, Let's see. 
And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So before any of those angels, trumpet angels, blow their trumpets, this other angel comes out, and he's got this golden stick, and he goes up to the altar, and he's going to offer some incense. Now, in the temple, way back in the day, in the Old Testament, in the temple, there were two altars, two main altars. There was the altar of sacrifice that they would take the animal and offer the sacrifice on, and then there was the altar of incense that they would offer incense on. Uh, And the idea here in the throne room, uh, there's only one altar in the throne room of God. There's not an altar of sacrifice because Jesus has already offered the sacrifice. But there is this altar of incense, which is very important. This angel goes up and he offers this, this offering on the altar of incense with the prayers of the people. And now we learned early in Revelation that... The, the prayers of God's people, the prayers of believers, Christians, were constantly held in the presence. The presence of God. Uh, const- the prayers of the people were constantly in the presence of God. And so this angel comes out and he gets a scoop of an offering along with the prayers. And he offers the prayers uh, as an offering before God. And uh, in offering it before God, he then takes and he scoops up the fire from that altar. So this altar is the prayers that he's scooping up. And he takes the prayers of the people of God, of Christians, and he throws the prayers to the earth. And look what happens, right? Uh, As he throws them, there's great peals of thunder, there's great rumblings, there's great flashes of lightning, and there's an earthquake. So... Before any of the angels blow their trumpets, there has to be this prayer offering. And the, 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 the prayer offering is extremely powerful because of what escorts the prayers, the thunder, the rumblings, the, the flashes of lightning, the earthquake. And the thing about the power of prayer is that the power of prayer knows only the limits of the power of God. Let me say that again. The power of prayer knows only the limits of the power of God, which cannot be contained, it cannot be bound, it cannot be limited in any capacity. There was a, uh, a guy who, who toured with D.L. Moody 150 years ago, and in writing about Moody, who was a preacher, an evangelist, uh, talking about his prayer life, he said this, his name was R.A. Torrey, he said, prayer can do anything God can do. Prayer can do anything God can do. Sometimes we think, you know, I pray, but I don't feel like anything's ever ever really happening. I, I don't really believe prayer can do X, Y, and Z. But in reality, prayer can do anything that God can do. Prayer has no limit. Prayer has no capacity. Prayer can and should be offered at any point. And here we see that the judgment in Revelation is paused so that believing prayers can be offered to God. That's how valuable he considers prayers to be. 
And this fire is, is hurled down, comes from the altar. It is the prayers that are being offered. And God has great value and, and uh, love for the prayers of his people. So big or small, any prayer offered to God is valuable and never wasted. Big or small, any prayer offered to God is valuable and never wasted. Ever. Ever. We've seen those prayers are constantly in his presence. We've seen he takes them and he offers them in the midst of his presence there in his throne room. Every prayer is valuable. So this prayer offering takes place. Now look at verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And the first angel blew his trumpet. And there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all of the green grass was burned up. And so you get this trumpets blown. Trumpet number one is blown by this angel. And hail and fire come. And now it says mixed with blood. But the way it describes it there in, in this original language in the first century, it, it's not the idea of uh, hail and fire, like hail and lightning, and there's blood falling from the sky. It is the language, the way it's described is that there's hail and there's lightning, and it causes a lot of blood uh, is the way it's being described here. And so all this is taking place. And it says that uh, this hail and fire uh, thrown on the earth, there's a third of the earth is burned up, third of the trees, all the green grass uh, is burned up. Uh, there's a prophecy actually in the book of Joel that's uh, almost identical to this, very similar uh, to this kind of catastrophe here. Uh, and so this terrible weather takes place and it affects the land in a, a, an incredible way uh, where a third of it is destroyed in this fashion. And so angel number one, keep this in mind as we, as we go through these angels uh, blowing these trumpets, uh, angel number one blows a trumpet, and this judgment has to do with the land and stuff that takes place on land, okay? Um, trees, grass, the earth. Uh, look at verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So the first trumpet had to do with the land. Now the second trumpet has to do with the sea, the oceans. Um, you get a burning mountain imagery here. There's some kind of divine destruction that takes place in the sea. Some people believe that's like, a, uh, you know, like an asteroid, a meteor coming down. It could be. It uh, depends on if you take it literal or figurative here. Um, and every time I mentions a third, I mean, that is a significant amount. It's not quite 50%, but it's a lot uh, of destruction that's taking place um, and it's not merely, you know, uh, you know, like pollution that would take place over many, many years. This is an, an, a, uh, almost an instantaneous type of deal of great devastation in the sea. The idea appears to be something abrupt and violent taking place uh, that impacts the, the oceans in this way, causing uh, the death of all these creatures and a third of the ships that are in the ocean at the time being destroyed uh, verse 10, and the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died because of the water, because it had been made bitter. So this time you got a star coming, 
and it poisons a third of the world's water. Wormwood, it's a very bitter substance. It's mentioned uh, actually seven times throughout Scripture, and it, it always represents sorrow and judgment. Bitterness is it, it's symbolic here of poison itself. Um, you had a third of the land being impacted by trumpet one. You had a third of the ocean, or a third of the oceans impacted by trumpet two. Now trumpet three comes, and you get a third of all the fresh water uh, is impacted. Uh, but notice it says many people died from this poisoned water. It doesn't tell us, doesn't even give us like a third of the people. It just says a whole bunch of people uh, there, a very generic reference. Verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, the, the text itself, there's two different ways you can interpret this from the way it's phrased in the original language. It can either mean for a third of the day, the light doesn't shine, and a third of the night, the light doesn't shine. Or what I tend to think it means is that a, it, it shines a third less bright. Like in the daytime, it's a third less bright than it already is. Or in the nighttime, it's a third less bright than it already is. Um, and the text itself can mean either one, but I tend to lean towards uh, that way. Either way, there's a third of the celestial light that is gone. So you had trumpet one impacted the land, trumpet two, the oceans, trumpet three, the freshwater, uh, trumpet four impacts the light in the sky. Uh, look at verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of other trumpets that the three angels are, are, are about to blow. So he says three woes, and we're going to see in a minute these woes are representative of three specific things that are going to happen, bad things. This angel's coming, and he's saying, all the stuff that's happened so far has been bad, but it's nothing compared to what's about to happen. The what's about to happen is going to be some pretty, pretty heavy judgments. So this angel, his job, uh, this eagle, uh, his job is to come and make a call of preparation, a call of warning. And what I believe, as we're going to see in chapter 9, this happens specifically to give people an opportunity to come back and repent, to give people an opportunity. Stuff has happened, but you need to come to Jesus because what's about to happen is going to get worse. You need to come to Jesus and be sealed as those other believers are sealed and be protected. You need to come and believe. And so angel number five blows his trumpet. Look at verse one of chapter nine. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And so a star falls from heaven when, when trumpet number five is blown. Uh, and the star comes down. Uh, if you look, we're going to see it in a minute, but you can look ahead. But down to verse 11, uh, we believe that this star is an angel, most likely Satan, because this angel's name is Destroyer, uh, comes down. He, he is allowed to have the keys to the bottomless pit, to the abyss, as some translations call it. And he opens this place. And uh, this is going to usher in some more judgments. Now, 
We don't have a whole lot of reference in modern America, cultural reference to a place called the bottomless pit. But first century Romans and Judeans would have had a lot of opinions about the bottomless pit or the abyss. Um, It was a place of containment of evil, uh, a place of of evil angels where they were housed, a place of demons where they resided, uh, a place of uh, beings who were anti-God. It was where they were kept. Uh, If if some of you may uh, remember the passage uh, where Jesus went uh, to this one guy who had a whole bunch of demons inside of him, and the demons begged him not to throw them into the abyss. This is that place. And so instead, he cast them into pigs who ran off a cliff. Um, This is that place uh, that housed them. This isn't their eternal resting place. That's going to come in the end of Revelation. We're going to see that uh, in about a month or about a month. But this is the bottomless pit. It's where these people, these angels, these evil angels uh, reside uh, for a period of time. It's a figurative place of, uh, uh, of wickedness. And so this angel comes, he's given the keys to open this thing so these demons can come out. And when he opens it, this smoke rises. Now notice, it's not smoke from a furnace, as though there's burning down in the bottomless pit. It says it's smoke like the smoke from a furnace. Now words are always important, especially in Scripture. Every word in Scripture is important. That word like is very important, that it's not as though there is a great fire at the bottom of this bottomless pit as though there's a bottom to a bottomless pit. It's the smoke that comes out reminds John of smoke from a furnace. So again, he's trying to describe it so we understand it. You know, that language is very similar to like Jesus when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested and crucified. It said he sweat drops like blood. Some would try to say he actually sweat blood, but the scripture says he sweat drops like blood blood. Same here. The smoke that rose out was like the smoke from a great furnace. And the smoke was such that it darkened the light that was there. It was uh, just so thick uh, and dark that it reminded him of that kind of smoke. Look at verse 3. Then from the smoke, so out of the smoke, came locusts on the earth And they were given power like the power of scorpions. I want you to remember that phrase for something in just a minute. These locusts come flying out of the smoke, and they're given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, locusts naturally consume plants. This, this is probably, I mean, I believe this is figurative, this is imagery. Uh, these are demons that are coming out of the bottomless pit. They're given authority, like scorpions, to cause pain. To cause pain only to those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Which makes me believe, like back in, in chapter 7, uh, when the people are sealed, that it's referring to all, pe- all Christians being sealed. Because here, it, it, uh, uh, these... Demons, these locusts, are given the authority to harm all those who do not have the seal of God. So all the unbelievers um, to affect them, to impact them. Uh, And so uh, they go out and and, uh, do this great pain on those around them. 
But notice they are granted power. They don't have the power in themselves. They're given authority to do this because they don't have the authority to do this. God grants them this power, this authoritative power, power that is limited by the one who grants the power. He can take it away at any moment, and he will. Uh, but they go out, and, and they're allowed to uh, bring great pain. Look at verse 5. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion. So there's that phrasing again. A scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So they will try to die and be unable to do so. But these locusts, these demons are allowed to, to bring this pain. It says for five months, which generally a locust lives about five months. Uh, but five is also in Revelation, a number associated with humanity. Uh, but five is also a very limited uh, 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 number. It's uh, incomplete. It's not the full completion like the number seven or the number 12. Uh, the judgment is not yet final. And so these people are going to be tormented, tormented with great pain. Uh, great suffering, great struggle uh, by these locusts, by these uh, uh, demons that are going to come. And look at what they look like, verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like woman, women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And the power to hurt people for five months is in their tail. And so it gives us a description. Now, you might be trying to picture this thing literally. This thing would be pretty scary if it pops out and it looks literally like this. And these little locusts are flying all around you. Now... I tend to believe, again, these are spiritual beings, and each one of these descriptions uh, are, are part of their nature, their characteristics of these uh, beings rather than physical appearance. It could be. I mean, I could be totally wrong, and it could be that, but uh, that's what I tend to believe about this. So like lion's teeth would mean uh, not necessarily the size or shape of the teeth, but more the ferociousness of the beings themselves, or the iron breastplate, meaning these beings are well protected. Maybe they're the face like a person's face because it could be people implementing these things, uh, doing these things. Crowns of gold, they have authority given to them by God to do these things. Um, either way, uh, they, these beings are allowed to bring pain and struggle, but they're not allowed to kill. Notice that. God does not give them the permission to kill at all. And as I believe we're going to see towards the end of this chapter, that is God's grace and mercy, giving people more opportunity to believe in Jesus. Look at verse 11. They have as king over them an angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. Both those words in the name form mean destroyer. So this is the destroyer, who, that's the angel who came down and unlocked the bottomless pit, who we believe to be Satan. He is the destroyer. Uh, and then we're given a description uh, of the situation. He says, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now, remember, earlier the, the 
it was said, whoa, 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 because what's coming is going to be worse than what was. And so he's, we're being told here, this is the first woe when that bottomless pit is unlocked and these uh, evil spiritual beings come out to wreak spiritual havoc on the world. Uh, that is the, the first uh, really, really bad deal that's going to be happening. The locusts uh, are just the first of those three. And that occurs there, the fifth trumpet is blown. Now look at verse 13, trumpet number six. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar of God. And so a voice speaks out from the altar. This is very unique, right? I mean, we, we get voices coming from angels, voices coming from eagles, voices coming from the throne, voices coming from in the midst of the four living creatures flying around the throne. The four living creatures all speak, the elders speak, and now we got a voice coming out of the throne of God. Uh, I believe it's some kind of, it's a divine voice. It's probably God's voice coming out of the, the, the altar there. Um, and we can get into it and talk and, and debate all day long about some of this stuff. And, and, we, and guys and all the commentaries I read disagree with each other on the vast majority of things taking place in the book of Revelation. But digging too much into figurative language and arguing about uh, this language that is purposely vague, it will lead to misinterpretation. And really, honestly, functionally missing the point of the passage. I was like arguing about, just as an example, the voice of the one, this voice coming out of the altar of God. If John writing this down, or God, Jesus, communicating this to John, really wanted us to know, he would have written down there who was speaking. But the, who is speaking is not the point. The point is what is said. Far too often we get hung up in the weeds and we miss what is really going on. And we don't need to spend time debating things that are not an issue. We need to focus on the main thing. Or as I heard a preacher say, keep the main thing the main thing. Don't make small things the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. I heard a guy, a guy the other day was asking about how can we get along with this denomination and that denomination or these other denominations in town when they believe this, 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 and this. And I told the guy, I said, well, uh, we can disagree on a few of these deals, but I know like Pastor Ray down the street, he believes you have to believe in Jesus, died and rose from the dead to forgive our sins, and Jesus rose from the dead so we can go to heaven. He believes that. So I can get along with him. Because we believe the main thing. And I honestly, I mean, just as an aside about Pastor Ray, I don't know any pastor in town who evangelizes better than Pastor Ray. That guy will tell a tree about Jesus, and the tree will get saved and baptized that day. Uh, but uh, I've seen him chase a car down to tell somebody about Jesus before. Uh, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. It's all about Jesus. That is the thing that matters. That is the thing that matters is Jesus. And so... As we look through Revelation, I mean, really, honestly, as we look through all of Scripture, the main thing is Jesus dying and raising from the dead. So let's not get lost in the other stuff. Yes, we can talk about it. Yes, it can draw us closer to Jesus, as I believe this passage is. As we're getting to the end of the chapter here, it's going to uh, all come together, and I'll show you that. But it's all about Jesus. And so just like a bunch of those commentators I read arguing and debating whose voice this is, that's not the point. The point is what the voice says. 
If you spend too much time arguing about the voice, you're going to miss what the voice says. And so here's what the voice said, verse 14. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of all mankind. And so there were four angels being held at bay. These could be the four angels, the four riders who were held at bay from chapter 7, the four riders at the first four seals uh, that were popped open, possibly. Um, they were described as being held back at the four corners of the earth, which could be sim symbolic here in the uh, river Euphrates. Uh, but notice he says a third of the earth will be killed. Uh, so it's a significant amount, not a majority, but a significant amount. But if you take this third as well as from a few chapters ago, a fourth of the earth was killed, and now a third of that has been killed. Half of all the population of the earth is gone now. Half. Imagine that kind of devastation. With the total amount of people who live on the earth today, if half were gone, just in a period of months, maybe a period of a, a year or two, how, how fearful and confusing that would be. I mean, we already have great fear and confusion as, we, as, as tends to arise when, you know, dozens are taken from us at a time when they should not be, but billions are wiped out over the course of a few months, maybe a couple years. Half of the world is gone now uh, if it were today's population. Look at verse 16. The number of mounted troops, now he's describing again the demon locusts here. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Now, 10,000 was like the highest Roman number. That's as high as people could count. So he's saying it's twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's like the little kid who would always say infinity plus one, right? It's like the, the max amount. Like you, you can't count higher than this is what he's saying. He said, there's so many people here that it boggles the mind of how massive uh, 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 these demon locusts are. Verse 17, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision, those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire, sapphire of sulfur. Uh, the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Again, remember, very similar description to what we had before with the lion's teeth uh, and the breastplates. They had fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And so again, uh, very similar to what John already saw with the demon locusts, and uh, their attack is going to be unmatched. You know, people are going to uh, uh, be faced with this great uh, army uh, of, in, of an enemy here and not be able to do anything against them. Um, the description we believe, is talking about the demons. But I want to point out one thing there, as John hasn't really done this. In his description of the, the, this army, verse 17, he, he includes these three words. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. He wants to remind us as readers, he's seeing this in a prophetic vision. He's seeing this, not physically, he's seeing it in a prophetic vision Granted to him by God, and so we need to interpret it that way, uh, that he's seeing this in this way. Uh, verse 18. By, the, by these three plagues, the fire, 
smoke and sulfur that he mentioned in verse 17. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. So this is how the third of mankind is going to die. Uh, by the now having been granted the, the power to kill. These three plagues, a third of the mankind uh, will be killed uh, by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. And so, this is very interesting as well, right? The fire, smoke, and sulfur that's going to kill a third of the mankind is going to come out of the mouths of the horses. Uh, but the tails will also be able to wound. So the tails won't kill. So even though you can be hurt going and coming by these things, it's only what comes out of the mouth of these beings that will bring about death uh, by these things. It is a, a terrible thing uh, to face down this kind of uh, evil uh, in, in the world. Look at verse 20. The rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues. Now, that word plague, that's how he described it in verse 18, and he describes it again here. He doesn't, so by saying that word plague, he's, he's not saying that the fire, smoke, and sulfur are literal, that people are going to be catching fire. He's saying that, that these are plagues, and how they're going to play out are going to be like a plague on humanity. He says that everybody else who did not die, so the two-thirds who did not die, it says, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So these people are going to experience this pain. They're going to see all this devastation, all these deaths that are taking place, and they're going to see none of the Christians are being affected at all. None of the Christians are going to be, be impacted by this. And we know from a couple chapters ago, they know that it's God and Jesus doing it. A couple chapters ago, it's revealed they know Jesus is behind this in order to bring them to repentance. And now here at the end of chapter 9, we learn even though they know it's Jesus trying to bring them to salvation, it says they refuse to repent. Repent means to change your mind, to, to turn from what was into something new. They refuse to change their mind. And so we can see all of this. We can see all of these judgments taking place. And it would be easy to ask the question, seeing all of these judgments and all of these pl all this pain, how can a loving God do all of these horrible things to humanity? How can a loving God, or as we see, allow these things or give permission for these things to happen? As though the opening of the seals and the blowing of the trumpets were in opposition to the very nature of God and God's love. Actually, I tend to think that everything that happens in the book of Revelation is a complete demonstration of God's love. Because if you really think about it, if God did not act in love in bringing judgment on the world, he would have just done it one second. Boom, judgment over, everybody's taken care of. It's not going to be, you know, process by process by process. It's not going to be giving people an opportunity. If God was not love, he would have just cut it off. Here's a, here's a hard end. Nobody else has an opportunity. We're just going to allow it to stop right here, right now. But God doesn't do that. 
God does it in steps. God does it in stages. God is love. He's, he's allowing these things to take place, planning these things to take place to give people an opportunity. He's giving them a countdown to the end in all of these things happening and saying, this stuff is happening. If you want it to stop and you want to find freedom and you want to find salvation and you want to find peace, come to Jesus. We know they know the truth because they revealed that a few chapters ago. And then here in chapter 9, they still refuse, knowing the truth, knowing the pain they experience, knowing the inner turmoil they're experiencing in addition to their pain, whether it's physical or spiritual or emotional, however it plays out. But they still refuse to believe. They refuse to follow Jesus. Even knowing all of this, God in his love, trying to give people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. You see, what's really happening is, is God, he's ending the torturous reign of Satan. He's ending death, ultimately. But in order to do that, he has to bring all of this world to an end, to stop it, because it's broken. And he has to introduce a new world where there's no death and there's no Satan. And so he's giving all these people time to, to come to Jesus, He's saying, it's, the end is coming. You've got to come to Jesus before the end comes. You've got to find salvation before the end comes. And so he's giving them all this opportunity to come to Jesus and say, get ready, the end is coming. Get ready, the end is coming. Get ready, the end is coming. But then in chapter 9 it says, but most of them are going to continue to do what they're doing. They're going to refuse to change their minds. They, they see the freedom that the Christians have in none of the pain, in none of the struggle. But they're going to refuse to follow that path, refuse to go that way, and continue to do what they're doing. Knowing Jesus will bring the peace and the freedom, but refusing to follow that way out. You see, God is love. God's love is shown with unlimited generosity in giving people so many chances to come to him. We know from 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 2 Peter chapter 3, in both places, it says that God wants all people to be saved. He doesn't want anybody, anybody to not go to heaven. He wants everybody to go to heaven. But people still have to make the choice. And so that's why he's giving people opportunity after opportunity. He's giving people chance after chance. He gave them seven seals and judgment's happening. And then the seventh seal happens, pops open. You would think judgment's going to come. This is the end. He goes, no, I'll give you seven more chances. I'll give you seven trumpet judgments to give you more chances to come. It's like, have you ever uh, had, a, had your kid and you, you were giving your kid a countdown to do something? You're like, three, two, one, half. Quarter, one-eighth, they're giving them another chance, like a little bit more time. That's what we're getting here. He's giving people a little bit more time to turn to Jesus, to come to Jesus, to find eternal life. And honestly, that is the point of all the craziness. That is the point of the entire book of Revelation, to point people to Jesus. That's why it's here, to point people to to Jesus, but in truth, that is the exact reason you're here, Christian. Point people to Jesus. You say, why am I still here? Point people to Jesus. Why do I have this job 
to point people to Jesus. Why, why do I have these family members? God, they are driving me bananas. So you can point people to Jesus. Point them to Jesus. You say, they need Jesus. Why do I have these neighbors? Why do I have these friends? Why do I have this, these people on social media keep popping up? So you can point them to Jesus. What is the point of all of this to point people to Jesus? Jesus said it. In the Great Commission, when he told his disciples before he went back to heaven, last thing he said, go and make disciples. Go and point people to me. And that includes pointing yourself to Jesus. Sometimes we need a wake-up call ourselves. The point of all of it is to point people to Jesus. Why am I struggling? Why am I suffering? Why am I going through this? To point people to Jesus. Paul was struggling. Paul was going through great difficulty. He calls it his thorn in the flesh. And he was told by God, my grace is sufficient for you. Keep doing what I put you out there to do and point more people to Jesus. Point people to Jesus, wherever you are. I've told the story about that faithful church member we had in the nursing home. She's in heaven now. But her philosophy in being in the nursing home wasn't because, you know, she wasn't in the nursing home because her family was unfeeling and didn't want to take care of her or because they didn't feel they could take care of her. Or, or, or she, didn't, she didn't look down on herself being in the nursing home by herself. Her mindset was, I'm in the nursing home because people here need to know Jesus. And so every nurse that walked into her room heard the gospel. When the preacher came to visit her every time, she told me about how good Jesus was to her that day. She had me open her Bible and read what she read that morning. And then she prayed over me when I had come to pray over her. Because her philosophy was, I'm here to point people to Jesus. And until my last breath, I'm going to point people to Jesus. That's my point. That's my purpose. That's my calling, is to point people to Jesus. I was reading the other day about the butterfly. Butterflies are colorful, right? And there's lots of theories about that. Trying to attract a mate. Uh, 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 so they can camouflage. But in among that is this very interesting one, that butterflies are colorful, they believe, uh, some of them, to ward off predators, to, to, to be a sign to everyone who sees them, I taste gross. And so everyone who's, all the predators, all the, 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 the birds or whoever would eat a butterfly can see that color and say, I don't want to eat that. I don't want to eat that. So they all know what that butterfly is all about. When people look at you, Christian, people should know what you're all about. All about. I got a quote on, on my wall. I've got a whole bunch of sticky notes in front of my desk. You should come see it. Uh, it gets kind of crazy. Uh, uh, somebody came in my office a, few, uh, a month or so ago and said, oh, you got a whole bunch of new sticky notes. <laughs> no deal. I've been reading a new book. Um, but one of them, uh, I think it was Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. He said, a person should not live near a Christian for seven days and not hear the gospel of Christ. You are where you are, planted there to point people to Jesus. Point of the book of Revelation is to point people to Jesus with, with, with every word, with, with every comma, with every judgment that pours out. You are where you are to point people to Jesus. When your kids frustrate you, Point them to Jesus. When your parents frustrate you, point them to Jesus. That's not my kids. Your parents never frustrate you. But everybody else, point them to Jesus. 
When the salesman on the phone frustrates you, point them to Jesus. When the circumstance is is mind-boggling as to why it's happening, point people to Jesus. Point them to Jesus with your words as well as your actions. It should be both. You shouldn't just do actions and no words. Actions without words are meaningless actions. People don't know. They just think, oh, that's a good person. But if you don't have words that match your actions, they will never know that Jesus is the motivation behind the action. Point people to Jesus. Point them to Jesus at every point, at every juncture. As Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. All of it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so as we look at the book of Revelation, maybe you're here in the room today because you need somebody to point you to Jesus. And so I'll point you to Jesus right now. Jesus is the Son of God. He died so all of your sins would be forgiven, all of them. Even the stuff you haven't told anybody about. Even the stuff that is way back in the past and you would like to forget, but Satan keeps bringing it up to bring you shame. And you need to find forgiveness. You can find forgiveness in Jesus. Come to Jesus. Find forgiveness because his death paid for all of your sins. And he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And if you want to make that decision to follow Jesus today, I want to talk to you. I'll be standing right down here at the front in just a minute when the music team sings. Pastor Jared will be at the back if you don't want to come down front. You can come and talk to one of us, and we'd love to pray with you and celebrate with you. Maybe you need to come today, and you already know Jesus, but you need to begin to point to Jesus more regularly. And not just on occasion, not just sporadically, but it needs to become a habit in who you are. And maybe you need to come today and you need to pray and say, I need to point people to Jesus. Jesus, I need your strength and I need your power and I need to be able to do this. And, and, and it's a struggle to point people to you. And, and I don't know what people are going to think when I start to act this way and do this way and my actions and my words begin to point people to Jesus. But God, I need you to help me in the process. Maybe you need to come and pray and say, I need to point to Jesus. Or maybe you do have a family member or friend who is pointing to a whole host of things that are not Jesus. And you need to come and pray for them. Because the things that their life is pointing to may be leading people away from Jesus, including themselves. And you need to come and pray for God's divine intervention in their hearts and in their life. You can come and pray for that as well. So I'm going to pray, and if you need to know Jesus, come and talk to either me or Jared. If you need to come and pray, come and pray. But let's all together point to Jesus.